0: This week on Delicious History, on vacation, we find ourselves in the eternal city herself, Rome, Italy. Imagine being so gluttonous that you end up ending an entire Roman imperial dynasty. Find out how this happened on this episode of Delicious History. Down
1: each avenue the street or strada, you can see them disappearing two by two. On an evening in a row, do they take him for espresso? Yeah, I guess so. On each lover's arm, a girl. I wish I knew. On an evening in a
0: Delicious History the podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit us at delicioushistorypodcast.com or on our Instagram or Facebook pages, both at Delicious History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dave Militello. This week's episode is brought to you by Reliable P.O.D. If you're looking to have any sort of merchandise made for your company, for your YouTube channel, your podcast, or really any kind of merchandise, the last thing you'd want to do is purchase hundreds or even thousands of units. Why not be able to just Send out a unit each time one is ordered. Well, with Reliable POD, you can make that happen. Check them out at ReliablePOD.com for more information. Well, we finally made it to Rome. For me, this is a long time coming, since actually I have not been here since I have been married, or even since I even knew my wife for that matter. And so this was a chance for us to go together, and I got to show her my old stomping grounds. Plus, I got to see my sister, who's lived here for about 23, 24 years now. Yeah, she's a tour guide here in the city. When I used to live here, it was pretty awesome uh, because it's Rome, but it was also a bit limiting because I was a broke writer and I was really broke at the time. I was just barely making it by with living with a few roommates there. But the one thing I did have going for me was that I had an apartment just a couple blocks away from Termini Station, which meant that the whole city was at my fingertips. Termini is the center for the subway stations, the buses, trains, everything, you name it. And so I could just roll out of bed and really go anywhere. But unfortunately, the places I'd go to couldn't really cost too much money because, again, I had nothing to spend. And because of that, I didn't really know much about the restaurant scene in Rome at the time. Every once in a while, I'd go out mostly for gelato, but nine times out of ten, if I was going out to a restaurant, it was because my sister was feeling pity on me and decided to take me out to dinner. But other than that, I would just go to the markets and, and cook things at home. But that said, I still really got to know the city quite well. One of the main reasons was because I was, besides being a writer, I was actually working as a translator for another tour guide, and I would translate the English tour guide's comments into Spanish or Italian when he had clients that didn't speak English. And because of that, I really got to know the city quite well. Plus, I would just walk places. I mean, every day it would seem like I'd be walking past the Fountain of Trevi, the Pantheon, or other historical places in the city of Rome, just to wherever I was going. And so because of that, I actually got to know the city quite well. But again, restaurants weren't really something I knew all that much about until this particular trip. If you come to Rome, be sure to eat the local cuisine that they're very proud to serve, which I suppose is true for most of Italy, actually. So this means you're not going to be getting lasagna. It means you're going to fill up on carbonara, cacio e pepe, and pretty much anything with artichokes when they're in season. My absolute favorite place to go and eat, there's this little place in uh, Campo di Fiori and their specialty is anything that's fried this place i don't know how many gallons of oil they go through every five minutes because they they're known for their deep fried bacala and bacala is dried and salted codfish which they rehydrate and deep fry in batter and then with this you'd get like a bowl of garbanzos just in a pool of olive oil and spices this place is so greasy that their tablecloths are literally just big rolls of paper to mop up all the grease. Ironically, even though this was the kind of stuff I would eat, I lost more than 20 pounds living here. That said, the food I was eating wasn't really too good for my body, even though I was losing weight. In fact, I was drinking a lot of wine and, and a lot of this fried foods. And fun fact, when I came back to the States after living in Rome for a bit, I had such bad acid reflux that I thought I was having a heart attack and had to go in an ambulance to the hospital. Now, I know this all sounds rather gluttonous, but that's nothing compared to the subject of today's show. Let's go back to the year 69 CE. This was a very bad, no good year for the Romans. Why was it so bad, you ask? Well, that's an excellent question. Well, it's because this was known as the year of four emperors. Now, for those of you wondering, that's about three emperors too many if you're looking for stability within your government. Of course, there were other bad years after this, known as the year of five emperors in 193, and even the year of six emperors in 238. As a rule of thumb, if you have more than two emperors in a year, and that's only because one died and another replaced him, it probably means things weren't going so good at the Palatine Hills. So let's get into some background before we really dig into the story. I'm sure you've probably heard of Emperor Nero, one of history's favorite tyrants. He was a very popular fellow for a while, but then towards the end of the reign, well, his public started to turn on him for his, let's say, questionable policies and actions. In fact, the Senate formally considered him an enemy of the state in the year 68. One thing led to another, and the Roman governor, who was ruling a province in modern-day Spain, who is known as Galba, ended up becoming appointed as emperor. Nero planned to escape to Egypt, But amongst all the confusion with the Praetorian Guard abandoning him and the appointment of the new emperor, he just ended up ending his own life to avoid a worse fate. So we're going into the year 69 CE with Emperor Galba. And the first thing he does is just start killing a bunch of people that he thought were political threats, both in the province where he'd been governor and eventually in the city of Rome itself. Okay, this doesn't seem too unusual for rulers of that time, but when I said he started killing people, I'm not just talking about a few major rivals. I mean, this guy was killing thousands of people. Now, I don't think I have to be the one to tell you, but actions like that don't make you a lot of friends. And on top of that, he'd promised the Praetorian Guard a whole bunch of money if they supported him in his coup. Well, it turns out he had no intention of paying the Praetorian Guards. Which is not something you want to do, considering the fact that the whole point of the Praetorian Guard was to be the elite soldiers of the military who vowed to protect the emperor. Besides making people angry, he ended up also making some really bad decisions, such as appointing his cronies to important posts, regardless of whether or not they could actually fulfill their duties. One example of this was the appointment of a man by the name of Vitellius over the military campaigns in Germania. Galba not only upset his Praetorian guard, but a lot of other soldiers in other parts of the empire refused to swear allegiance to him, especially those in Germania who claimed that Vitellius would be their emperor. Well, this started a civil war that obviously made Galba quite nervous. One of the major problems that he faced was that he didn't have an heir, which in those days made somebody the equivalent of a lame duck. He adopted a young senator in the hopes of pleasing the people that he finally had an heir, but ended up upsetting Marcus Salvius Altho, who thought he was going to be the one to receive that honor. Well, since the Praetorian Guard was already in the outs with the emperor, it didn't take much for Altho to bribe them to quickly put an end to Galba's reign. Okay, so now we're on to emperor number two of the year of four emperors the Senate quickly recognized Otho on the very day that he had the previous emperor killed. Although he was a young nobleman who was known to be ambitious, he was still known as being fair, so the Senate was more than happy to have someone who would be level-headed considering everything that was going on in Rome at the time. However, Vitellius quickly put an end to those good feelings when he officially declared himself to be emperor and started his march to Rome. Otho wanted to avoid any additional bloodshed, especially his own blood, and sent messengers to Vitellius to try to talk some sense into him. He offered a peace deal that included him marrying Vitellius' daughter, which would cement the family into the imperial bloodline. But Vitellius and his troops met up with Otho's at Bedricium, which is in modern-day northern Italy, not too far from Milan. At this battle, known as the First Battle of Bedricium, Vitellius handedly won and continued his march to Rome. Seeing that the writing was on the wall, Otho followed in Nero's footsteps and ended his life as well. All right, so now we are at emperor number three of the year of four emperors, and we're getting to the meat of our story. Let's talk about Vitellius. Vitellius was, um, hmm, how do I put this nicely? He was a thick boy. And ironically, if you look into Roman history, You see all these emperors who are used to having banquets and ungodly amounts of food, and yet when we look at their statues, they're in pretty decent shape, right? Well, Vitalius was an exception to that rule. All of the busts that we have of him always show him with a giant double chin. And this made sense because the guy ate just a a tremendous amount of food, like, every day. Okay, on a side note, uh, talking about his appearance... I recently saw an AI-generated version of what Vitellius would look like if he was in modern times, and he looks like just some random guy in Jersey. So as much as it pains me not to do it, I am going to call him Emperor Vitellius, not Emperor Vito from Secaucus. Anyway, we need to talk about the way he ate. Now, when I say Vitellius was a glutton, I'm not saying he overate or that he was overweight. I'm saying he was an absolute glutton in every sense of the word. One of the reasons that people were so upset when he was appointed to his high position in Germania was the fact that he was known for being absolutely obsessed with eating all the time. Historian Suetonius in his Twelve Caesars wrote that Vitellius was appointed to governor of Lower Germania by Galba because, quote, "...a glutton was a sort of rival whom he feared least." And that he expected Vitellius to cram his belly with the fruits of the province. In fact, he was absolutely broke because of just how much food he would buy on a regular basis. Again, we're not talking about somebody who just ate a lot of food. This was somebody who had some kind of mental issue, like a serious eating disorder, that led to him making very bad decisions because of his obsession with eating. For instance, he really didn't seem to put much thought into the whole becoming a Roman emperor thing. It really just seems like his men wanted their leader to control Rome versus being a respected person in his own right. For example, he just decided to take the throne on a day that was convenient for him. The problem with that was that he didn't really pick a very good day. You see, the day that was most convenient for him was July 18th. Now, if that's not ringing any bells, That's because that was the anniversary of the Battle of Alia. Okay, if that's not ringing any bells, don't worry. (laughs) For us, it really doesn't mean that much. But for the Romans, this was a very important day because this was the first day that the city of Rome itself was sacked and most of the senators were murdered. True, it did happen 400 years before Vitellius took throne, but that date was still considered to be very unlucky with these very superstitious Romans. Think of it like an American president taking office on September 11th. A lot of people took notice of the fact that this was the day he chose to take the throne and felt it was a very bad omen for things to come. Then there was the time where he was apparently told by a fortune teller that if his mother died during his rule, that he would last longer as emperor. So in the irony of ironies, one of the most famous gluttons in history starves his mother to death. Well, at least he tried to. Apparently she asked for poison so that she could end her own life before it came to that, which he kindly obliged to. But hey, this is a show about food, so let's get back to what he was eating. Historians at the time reported that Vitellius would not only have banquets, but he would have multiple banquets per day. One of my favorite things about this part of the story is that, yes, he would have his own banquets at the Imperial Palace, but he would also just randomly show up at people's houses and expect them to put on a feast for him. Of all of his feasts, one of the most popular was one that he had in honor of his brother Lucius. At this particular banquet, he served 2,000 choice fishes and 7,000 birds, which apparently wasn't too out of character for him, because what people really noticed was the shield of Minerva. This was a platter that came with livers of pike brains of pheasants and peacocks, flamingo tongues, and the entrails of lampreys. In general, while he was known for eating just about whatever he could stuff in his face, he did have a reputation for being a lover of seafood in particular. In fact, when he was marching from Lower Germania to Rome, it was said that he demanded large amounts of fish from the sea to be transported in large boxes full of seawater so that they can be as fresh as possible when they arrived at his table. In Edward Gibbon's book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he was quoted as saying that, quote, it is not easy to express his vices with dignity or even decency. Tacitus fairly calls him a hog, unquote. Unfortunately, there are a number of problems that came with all this gluttony besides just the great miracle that he didn't die from all that eating. You know, which I find to be incredible, because I swear, one time, I ate a peanut butter sandwich too fast, and I was convinced I was going to have a heart attack and die. And here this guy is eating every organ and entrail of animals you can imagine day after day and seems to have no problems whatsoever. Something important about eating this much food is that it's going to cost a lot of money. Remember that he went broke as a private citizen trying to feed himself like this. And now that he was emperor, he set the dial to 11 and was not only feeding himself like a pig, but all those around him. All those exotic foods weren't free, and within just a few months, he started to empty out the government coffers. Just like with any head of state, pretty much everything that Vitellius had or consumed had to come from the Roman taxpayers. During his time, he was known for being so lavish when it came time for his meals that the word Vitellian became known as something that was over-the-top and outlandish. As a result, you'd imagine he'd want to be on the up-and-up with all of his people. But surprisingly, this legendary glutton was known for being selfish and cruel. At one point, he was quoted as saying, quote, The stench of a dead enemy is wonderful. The stench of a dead fellow citizen is even better. Unquote. This, of course, implying that he was sadistic towards those whom he had power over, namely, everyone in the Roman Empire. Of course, we have to take quotes like this with a grain of salt, because we know that historically, people can become vilified by their enemies long after the fact. And we've actually mentioned this in multiple episodes before. Regardless, Vitellius gained such a reputation for being someone who only cared about their gut and not about the empire that they ruled over, that people very quickly started to turn on him. Later on that same year, General Vespasian, who is coming back from fighting against the revolts in eastern Mediterranean, heard about the change in rulership and decided that he was going to come to Rome and he was going to take over the show for himself. Vitellius sent wave after wave of soldiers to stop the advancement, but a mix of Vespasian's military genius and people just frankly not wanting to support someone they consider to be a hog as emperor anymore led to Vespasian eventually arriving at Vitellius' doorstep. Realizing that anyone who had been loyal to him had either been vanquished or went to the other side, Vitellius now saw the writing on the wall and thought it was best to abdicate than to try to fight this any further. Vitellius worked out terms of his abdication through a commander named Marcus Antonius Primus, and as per the terms of the steel, he would be awaiting Vespasian's army at Mavania. For some reason that I really tried to understand in my research, but I just couldn't quite get to the core of it. The Praetorian Guard didn't let Vitellius do that and brought him back to the palace in Rome. I mean, I'm guessing there were sinister intentions, but it almost seems like they were trying to put him back in power. So I'm kind of confused by this, to be honest. And if you have more insight in this, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, Vespasian goes to the rendezvous point, but Vitellius isn't there so he decides to go directly to the palace and surprisingly met with some pretty staunch resistance from the civilians of Rome. Of course, it didn't work out too well for those people since they were throwing rocks and pots at trained and hardened Roman soldiers. That being said, it really wasn't much of a surprise when it was just an absolute slaughter, and as many as 50,000 people died as Vespasian made his way to the palace, along with quite a bit of property damage as well. The prime example of this was the destruction of the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. Vitellius, being the courageous, upstanding Roman citizen that he was, snuck his way into a doorkeeper's lodge and was eventually dragged out and driven to the Gemonian stairs. Supposedly, it was at this moment where he uttered his last words, quote, yet I was once your emperor, Unquote. He was then beaten and dragged to the Tiber River. From there, Cassius Dio recounted that Vitellius was decapitated and his head was paraded around the city of Rome. At the moment of his death, Suetonius wrote that, quote, he was in fact abnormally tall, with a face usually flushed with hard drinking and a huge belly, unquote. As is common in Roman fashion, both his brother and his son were killed to make sure no one else had a claim to the throne. Vespasian was then given the emperorship and ended one of the most tumultuous years of the early Roman Empire. With him taking the throne, Vespasian ruled for about 10 years, which was quite good, considering that the three people who ruled previous to him were only able to do it for a few months. Understanding both the importance to his own power as well as to the now shaken empire, Vespasian made sure to go into immediate damage control, squashing any possible revolts as well as trying to be on good terms as possible with both the military and the people of Rome. Although some of his policies were a bit harsh, and conquests into areas like Britannia and Judea obviously were at the cost of quite a bit of human life, he was considered to be a fairly decent emperor who was able to undo the damage of one of history's most famous gluttons. Also, he died from sudden and intense diarrhea while standing up, which has nothing to do with the story, but I think it's funny. Anyway, going back to Vitellius, he was around for a very short period of time And yet, for some reason, he's much more popular and well remembered than other emperors who ruled for much longer than him. So, what gives? Well, there's a couple things that may have contributed to his fame. First of all, he was the reason for drawing out one of the most consequential military campaigns of the Roman world, the Jewish Roman War, which ended in the complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the diaspora of the Jewish people, which we still feel the effects of to this day. Another reason why Vitellius' memory lived on for so long was because he found himself in a lot of artwork long after his death. Yeah, it's kind of random, but he definitely shows up in a lot of artwork, and it's not just our imagination. The artists who made these works specifically stated that Vitellius was the inspiration for them. Of these artworks, my favorite is probably the 19th century painting Hail Caesar, We Who Are About to Die Salute You by Jean-Léon Jérôme, and that's actually been posted already on the Instagram page. But basically, it's the gladiator painting that inspired the movie Gladiator. And sure enough, as these gladiators are saluting Caesar, not only do we see a thick boy on the throne, but we even see the inscription of his name below. So why was he so popular after his death in the art world? Well, after his death and the multiple sackings of Rome, Much of the art from that time period was lost, but not everything. There was a bust known as Gremani Vitellius, which actually has survived up to our day now. People saw this and they said, wow, this is a contemporary bust made of Emperor Vitellius. And they would use it as practice for sketching and to improve their own skills. As a result, many of the people who were studying art in and around the city of Venice, where the bust was kept, were very familiar with this face and included it in their paintings when you needed subjects that were either just fat or somehow represented gluttony and excess. I mean, there's even paintings of people observing the bust and drawing it. But I have some bad news for you. It turns out that particular bust wasn't actually a Vitellius and was just some random plus-size Roman from sometime in the 2nd century. Whoops. Well, I'm going to go on a diet now because I do not want to cause the downfall of an empire. On that note, Delicious History on vacation is going to its final destination, Sicily. Until next time, remember that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious.
1: (laughs) Mentre il soldo bacia il fontanone La tua canzone in fondo è questa qui. Ranzo a squarciarelli, fettuccine pino dei castelli, come i tempi belli, che vi dello. Pensa quella sua bella, era tanto bella che gli ha detto sempre più.